0: Lord, we thank you for your word lord we thank you that you have not left us in the dark Lord, even when there's things you speak on like deacons and it's difficult in some ways to figure it all out lord your word is sufficient for what you want to tell us and lord how you want us to live so we just pray for this morning as we come to your word as we consider how you've organized the church we pray that we would operate as you would have us um, not just so we can tick a box, but, Lord, so that we are operating as a church in the way that you want for the spread of the gospel. Uh, we want your word to multiply in Hood River, in the Mid-Columbia region, in Oregon, and in the world. Oh, Lord God, we pray that that would happen. So, Lord, um, Spirit, we, we, we thank you that you are here in the gathering, that you are amongst us. Take your word, apply it to us, Help me to be clear for your people. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, You can open your Bibles to Acts 6. Acts 6, 1 through 7 will be our scripture reading this morning. So whether that copy of God's Word is on a phone or on a uh, physical Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. Once you find that place, would you please stand? Because when the scripture speaks, God speaks. And so we stand out of respect for God's Word. Acts 6, Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily service. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, "'It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables.'" Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenos and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now, even though we um, uh, read Acts this morning, just to remind you where we're at, we've taken a break from our normal expository uh, series through Matthew, and we've taken this time to talk about... Uh, church offices, church offices. And so we started with the foundational church office, that is members. Uh, members constitute a church. And so we talked about members as uh, bearing the office of priesthood under the new covenant. And then we shifted. And the last couple weeks, we talked about uh, the office of elder. And now in the last couple weeks, we are going to talk about the office of deacon. The office of deacon, and we've talked about this as in kind of a twofold way. There's, of course, the church is an organism; it has life to it, it has a vitality to it that is produced by the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus has also given it an organization, is an organism and an organization. Why? Uh, so that the church, as it lives and works together, it reflects a culture that honors Christ as a people ransomed by Christ and also to work together for the good of the Great Commission. And so in that, we talked about the members, how the members perform their priestly duty through making disciples, and all the aspects that that entails. Evangelism, uh, instructing one another in love, uh, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and even church discipline. And the members, as the foundational office, have the authority of command. And then the last couple of weeks, we talked about, well, what do elders do? Elders as shepherds, they shepherd the members. They are job trainers, if you will, for the members to do what they need to do. And so the elders have authority of counsel. Members have authority of command. Elders have authority of counsel. They're steering the ship, but they're steering the members, teaching them, here's how you do your job as members. What about deacons? What about deacons? If we were to remember how we even kind of started this whole series, or at least prompted the whole series, it was that uh, verse one of Philippians 1, where Paul addresses the church in Philippi, and he says, all the saints, the members that are in Philippi, together with the overseers, that is the elders, and the deacons. So we've kind of walked through in our series following that path, starting with the saints, the members, going to the elders, and now finally the deacons. And what we want to talk about this morning, kind of like what we did with elders, we first want to talk about what do deacons do? So we started with elders, what do elders do? And then we talked about their qualifications. We're going to basically do the same thing with deacons. What do deacons do? And then what next week, what is their, what are the qualifications? And so here's the big idea as we come to our time this morning, I want to argue for this and being what deacons do. Deacons assist the elders so that they, the elders, can focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. Deacons assist the elders so that the, they, meaning the elders, can focus on prayer and ministry of the word. Now, as we jump into this and arguing for this main idea this morning, it's going to feel a little bit different because uh, to lay all my cards on the table, there, are, there is no explicit description in the New Testament for what deacons do. Not even Acts 6 that we just read, although I still believe there are implications for Acts 6 for deacons and diaconal work, there is no text in the New Testament that explicitly describes what deacons do. So we're going to have to argue the case a little bit differently. And so the way we're going to do this is we're first going to start with this idea of, well, what's the concept of this word deacon uh, and the, relate, the words related to it? And then next, we're going to not only give that backdrop, but we're also going to give the backdrop of the context of every member in the church serving. So it's not only the deacons and the elders serving, it is every member of the church serving. So that forms a backdrop. And then that will get us to the content referencing deacons, the only two texts, the only two clear texts, I should say, in the New Testament that reference deacons. And we'll be in a position then and finally to argue what deacons do. But then we're also going to end with uh, a contrast with the seven, the seven from Acts 6, that passage I began with, to fill out our understanding of, well, why is diaconal work important? So that's where we're going this morning. So let's first start with the concept of the word deacon and its related words. Like I said, there's only two clear passages in the New Testament where the office of deacon is mentioned, and there is, even in those passages, no explicit description of what they do. So how do we argue this? How do we get a sense of what deacons are supposed to do? They're there. They're very clearly there. So what do they do? And the way we're going to start with this is to start with the word deacon, which translates the Greek word diakonos, so you'll hear me mention that several times this morning, diakonos, But what you need to understand is that this word and its whole word group, uh, there's another noun uh, uh, and there's another verb that kind of go together, this whole word group, uh, they work together and they are mentioned many times in the New Testament, but just not always with regard to deacons in particular, toward that office. Normally in your English Bible, you're going to see the word or the word group uh, translated with words like this, servant serving, service. So those are really the three words uh, that, we are, are, that are part of the same word group of which diakonos, which is normally translated servant in the New Testament, is part. So in your English Bibles, you're probably going to see this translated diakonos, probably tr- most often translated servant. The action of serving is serving. And the overall kind of umbrella term for talking about a servant serving is service. Okay? Now, as we think about this word, uh, what you need to know is that this word was well-known in the Greco-Roman world of the time. So what we want to think about is when Paul, when he talks about the office of deacon, when he, talks, he uses the word diakonos, that would have prompted in the minds of his hearers a particular concept, a kind of a root concept, a basic concept. What was the concept? And it's this. A diakonos is authorized by someone to carry out a task. That's basically what it amounts to. A diakonos, a diakonos, a deacon, if you will, is authorized by someone to carry out a task. And so that's why sometimes, it, you, uh, often it gets translated just in the other texts of scripture as servant or one serving or service. But maybe another word and an analogy would help you. Um, Uh, If we were to just kind of talk about, in general, this idea of someone authorized by someone to carry out a task, another word that would be helpful would be attendant. Attendant. So the idea would be the diakonos is an attendant to someone for a particular task. They're going to do some attending, some sort of task that they're authorized to do. And the overall picture uh, of the attendant doing their work of attending is attendance right? They're attending to some sort of task. Or to give you an illustration uh, of uh, a modern-day diakonos in the secular world, a flight attendant. A flight attendant. The flight attendant is authorized uh, um, by the the captain and co-pilot to interact with the rest of the passengers to do particular tasks. Some of those tasks are like uh, or, or correspond to actually some of the ways it was used in the first century world. Um, uh, there are kind of four main ways in the first century world that the idea of a diakonos would be used. First was table attendance, like a waiter or a server. Uh, you actually see this usage in Acts 6. Acts 6, which we just read, the whole, uh, the whole thing is about food distribution And essentially, the people who are appointed, the seven who are appointed, uh, while they might do many other things, including preaching, uh, Stephen goes on to preach later, uh, the the main task was distribution of food. Uh, In other words, being a waiter or a server. The idea is an attendant. Well, that fits with even our flight attendant analogy, right? They're authorized to distribute food and whatever. But that's not the only way diakonos was used in the first century world. Oftentimes, you'll read in the New Testament, and there'll be this mention of a servant, like someone part of a household who will perform some sort of tasks at the behest of the master of the household. So you can think about this usage in terms of household duties, ranging from personal attendance to on the master to routine performance of various chores. You can actually see this use, or at least a reference to this use in Mark 10. can go ahead and turn there if you want. just kind of want to illustrate these different uses. There are a variety of uses of how this general idea of attendance or service is used. So Mark 10, Mark 10, Mark 10. Um, In the context of Mark 10, and actually we've seen this similar context in Matthew recently, uh, the disciples, particularly James and John, they're coming, hey, we want, we want some high status, we want some high rank in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is not how my kingdom works. Uh, the, the greatest among you, what's the greatest among you going to be like? He says this in verse 43 in Mark 10, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, Diakonos. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, referring to Jesus himself, came not to be served, there's our word group, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what Jesus is alluding to there is this usage of domestic attendance. A slave or a servant at the behest behest of a master, they're doing some tasks, they're attending to the master, they're attending to the household. That's a second way this word is used. Another way it's used is uh, the the diakonos could be uh, someone who's doing communication or delivery services. So you can think of someone who's officially commissioned, an ambassador, a messenger, an envoy, a courier who delivers a message or an object by one party to another. Again, it's just that general idea of carrying out a task, in this case for delivery, but it was often used that way at the behest of another. Paul actually uses it this way in describing the New Covenant ministry in 2 Corinthians 3. So what I'm doing here is I'm just giving you a sense of all the different ways this word group is used so that we have the right picture in our mind before we land on, well, okay, what does the office of deacon do? But 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is kind of, he's tussling with the Corinthian Christians, they're uh, objecting to his ministry. And so part of what's going on in 2 Corinthians 3 is Paul's defending his ministry, and he describes it uh, with some of our word group in 2 Corinthians 3. And I'll go ahead and start in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So he's kind of objecting. He's like, you guys, you guys want letters of recommendation from us? you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by our, uh, read by all and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered and i believe there that's the word from our word group literally like deaconed. like there was a courier service delivered by us written not by with ink but with the spirit of the living god not on the tablets of stone but on the tablets of human heart such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And it's in this context that Paul uses the idea of a diakonos, a servant, a minister, an attendant. But in this case, you can see he's likening delivering the message of the gospel, new covenant ministry, like a courier service which is a common way that the notion of a diakonos in the the Greco-Roman first century world would have been known. There's this idea of an envoy, a courier. And then fourth and finally, a diakonos could just be a subordinate with delegated authority who carries out an appointed task on behalf of a superior. I mean, it really fits with that same general notion. What is a diakonos? It's just someone who's carrying out a task at the behest of some superior but oftentimes that person who's carrying out the task has some agency. They have some authority backing it up. You can see this usage in Romans 13.4, passage we've become familiar with over the last couple years, looked at probably several times. Romans 13.4, or I'll start in verse one, actually, in Romans 13. For if you do wrong, be afraid, he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out, um, out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Well, here's another usage of diakonos, the idea of the state on behalf of God as an agent, carrying out the task of rewarding good and punishing evil. That's what the state is supposed to do. And the government, the state is a servant, a diakonos, an attendant, an attendant to do that particular task. So I go through all of that to give you a sense and flavor of what this word is. In general, what is a diakonos? What is a deacon in the most general sense? Someone who's authorized by someone to carry out some task. And like I said, even a modern day illustration, the flight attendant actually works pretty good because the flight attendant does some table service, but they also attend to other tasks in the airplane at the behest of the captain and co-pilot. Um, They also communicate and deliver messages like, you know, that thing that you all ignore at the beginning of a flight when they're like going through the safety procedures and if the plane explodes or if there's a decompression of the aircraft, they're delivering messages as a courier. Or there is even the idea of agency and instrumentality where the captain can talk to the flight attendant and say, hey, uh, get that person in the the, the cabin under control and I'm backing that authority. So in a sense, it gives us a nice helpful illustration and picture of attendance, of carrying out a task on behalf of a superior. That is the, uh, that is the concept of deacon and deacon-related words. So we start there. In general, if you use this word diakonos in a Greco-Roman world, they're going to think, oh, an attendant who carries out a task on behalf of the superior—that's the general notion. Now that groundwork being laid, we next need to look at the context of every member of the church serving. So when we think about a deacon, a diakonos, and by the way, when I you, you notice I'm just using the word deacon, not deaconess, there's a reason for that—not because there isn't uh, deaconess isn't legitimate, but because in the Uh, first century language that you could use, there was no specifically feminine word for diakonos. In fact, many times uh, females, including Phoebe in Romans uh, 16.1, we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, is called just a diakonos. It's using the male term to saying, here's your function. So it's not emphasizing, this term deacon doesn't necessarily emphasize whether you're a male or female. It just, that's just the term that gets used. Okay, so I'm not in any way excluding women as I'm talking about this. I'm just saying that in general, you call a woman or a man a deacon, a diakonos. It could be used for both. Now, that groundwork being laid, we want to look at the context of every member serving in a church. So when we think about deacons, we think about, oh, they're 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 serving, they're serving, they're ministering, and indeed they are. But there is another backdrop. As they are serving. And that is the context of every member serving in the church. So it forms part of this backdrop. So go to 1 Peter 4. Go to 1 Peter 4. <clears throat> 1 Peter 4, uh, Peter, the apostle, is um, speaking to churches in Asia Minor and he is preparing them for what he sees uh, persecution coming. And in the midst of this, um, he, he, uh, he, he gives us instruction or gives the church's instruction in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, starting there. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, shows hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, here we go. As each has received a gift, use it to serve. And there's our word group. There's our word group related to Diakonos. To serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, there's our word group again, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What is Peter saying here? He's saying, if you're a Christian, you have a gift and you are to use it to serve the body. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians, 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. He would say, there's variety of gifts, there's varieties of service, using our word group. He's using the same word group, varieties of ministries. But you're, all of those different gifts, all of those different ministries, they are for what? The common good of the church. The common good of the church. And that's what Peter is reflecting in 1 Peter 4. As each has received a gift, use it to serve, to exercise the function of a diakonos, for one another, as good stewards of God's very grace. And then what he says, he's saying, all right, every member's serving. Every member needs to be serving. But let's break that down into two broad categories. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So you got speaking gifts. Like, that's what the elders are supposed to do, right? That's, that's how the elders primarily shepherd. They shepherd through the teaching of the word. But then he says, all right, that's broad category number one. But broad category number two is... Whoever serves, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And amen. So you got speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now, is Paul just saying, or is Peter just saying, hey, uh, everyone serves, uh, but really the speaking people don't need to serve, but only the serving people do? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying everyone serves, but that service could look primarily like speaking. Or it could look primarily like serving. So he's, uh, he's using and emphasizing everyone's serving. Everyone's doing the office of a diakonos. Everyone's doing the office of a deacon, to kind of use it broadly in that sense. But some of the people doing the work of a diakonos are speaking, and some of the work of uh, 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 those are serving in more practical ways. But notice what it's all aimed at. It's aimed at the glory of God through everything. Dependence on God to do the task aimed at the glory of God. Everyone serves. So it's not as though the deacons, in the terms of an office, the particular office of deacon, it's not like, oh, those are the only ones who are serving in the church. No, the design of Christ for his church, the command of Christ for his church, is that every member serves. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians four eleven through 16. You don't have to turn there. We've gone to this passage multiple times in this series that the Christ has given to the church people as gifts. And he's given the apostles and the New Testament prophets and the evangelists and the pastors or the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints, the members to do what? The work of ministry. And that word there for ministry is our word group. It's in our word group. The whole body is doing the work of ministry. The whole body is serving one another. The whole body is doing a task entrusted to them by Christ to one another. And then Paul goes on to describe in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, the body is speaking truth to one another in love. And so the body is building itself up in love. That is the ministry, the service, the office that they are given to do. So I I run through this because that sets some of the boundaries, that sets some of the backdrop when we talk about the specific office of deacon. The deacons are not the ones doing all the service. Yes, they have a particular office, and we're going to talk about that here in a second, but everyone is supposed to be serving. Everyone is supposed to be deaconing in that sense, and that is part of the backdrop. So we've seen kind of the The concept of deacon-related words, we've seen the context in a local church of every member serving, and now, now we can go to the content referencing deacons. And what I mean by this is, let's go to the two clear passages in the New Testament that mention deacons, the office of deacon. Now, don't misunderstand me. Obviously, the New Testament talks about this word, but it doesn't use the word in specific to an office except two times. Once is Philippians 1.1. I already mentioned that. Paul is addressing the church in Philippi, and he addresses them as all the saints who are in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Now, that's just the address of Paul's letter. Paul doesn't take a moment there after his first verse in Philippians and say, now let me tell you what a deacon does. He doesn't do that. He just mentions them with the understanding that the church in Philippi already gets it. They already know what a deacon does. Well, what about the other passage in uh, the New Testament that mentions deacons? 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And that is where we're going to spend—we'll uh, go ahead and read that and talk about it. We're going to spend more time on it next, next week. But you might be scratching your head there for a minute and say, well, wait, 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 wait! you're saying there's only these two passages that very clearly represent the office of deacon. What about Acts 6? Because even I read that at the beginning. We'll talk more about Acts 6, but I'm going to argue that Acts 6 doesn't establish the office of deacon. There's still implications there that we can learn from, but I don't think it's explicitly talking about deacons. So that's one passage that you might have heard of before. It's like, well, doesn't that talk about deacons? I don't think so. Not directly, not directly. Uh, But then there might be another passage that comes to mind and you say, well, uh, uh, isn't this a third passage? And that passage would be, I already referenced it, Romans 16, Romans 16. What is Romans 16? Romans 16, 1. Uh, you can turn there or not. I'm just mentioning this as uh, this is another passage that is brought up as uh, a potential. Paul has done what he needed to do in Romans as far as the body of the letter. And then in Romans 16, he's giving greetings uh, to the, the, the churches, multiple churches in Rome. Uh, but he says this in Romans 16:1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant. And that's our word diakonos, of the church of Centria. Centria was about five miles from Corinth, where Paul is likely writing from. He writes the book of Romans from Corinth. Centria is about five miles on the coast. So this woman is part of the congregation and Centria. That you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to help her in whatever, way she, whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Now, why does he mention Phoebe? Well, because Phoebe probably carried the letter of Rome, Romans. She carried it as an, um, a, a, from her church in Centuria. She meets up with Paul somehow in Corinth, grabs the letter and goes over to Rome. Now, what you need to understand is that a courier of a letter, uh, they wouldn't just like show up and say, well, here's the letter. Oftentimes they would read the letter. So there's a good possibility that Phoebe read the letter of Romans to all of the different churches. So the question is, well, is this another aspect is this another reference to a deacon? Is Phoebe a deacon? It's not clear. Uh, we'll talk more about it next week, but, uh, it could be, it could very well be that she's a deacon of the church in Cetria, that she holds that particular office. That could be what it's referring to. But remember what I said, one of the uses of the word diakonos is of a courier, uh, someone who's delivering a message on behalf of someone else. So it could be that this is just referring to her as the courier of the letter of Rome, Romans. So it's not clear. I'm not saying it's not out of the running. I'm just saying it's not clear. Which, way it, which category it falls into. And so, what are we left with? Philippians 1 1 and 1 Timothy 3 1 through, or 1 Timothy 3 8 through 13. Now, we already looked at 1 Timothy 3 1 through 7, talking about the office of overseer and the qualifications for overseer. And in that context, Paul goes right into verse 8 through 13, which I'll go ahead and read. Deacons likewise must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them first also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, all of that is oriented towards character. There is no description of what a deacon does. Now, you could infer maybe a couple things from the character qualifications, but there is absolutely no description of what a deacon does. So what do we do? Well, this is why we spent some time developing the understanding of the concept of the word group. What is a deacon? What is a diakonos? In general, a diakonos is someone who does a task for someone else. Someone else gives the instruction, uh, and the deacon or the the diakonos is the attendant, the uh, one who carries out the task, maybe with the agency or the authority of the one who's sending. Now there is one thing that gives us a key clue in both Philippians 1 1 and in 1 Timothy 3 8 through 13. And it is this in each case where the office of deacon is clearly referenced, it is mentioned in the context of the overseers. Philippians 1 1. Uh, All the saints in Philippi with together with the overseers and the deacons. Uh, 1 Timothy 3. Uh, let's talk about the character qualifications of overseers. Now, deacons, attendants, right? If we were to use that kind of rendering, attendance, likewise, must be this. Well, the question is to us, who are they attending? Right? Because if you understand who they're attending, then you understand their function. Well, given the case that Philippians 1.1 and 1 Timothy 3.8-13 both reference the overseers, it makes the most sense to say the deacons are attending to the elders. They're carrying out tasks on behalf of the elders, because that's what would have been brought to the mind. Okay, we're talking about these overseers. They have some authority. They have some direction. They're teaching. there to be this quality. Okay, now we're talking about attendance. Attendance to whom? Well, attendance to the people we just talked about. Uh, even more so, if you were to think about in terms of a Greco-Roman household, a Greco-Roman household? Well, the father is the head of household in that world, and uh, he's going to have some attendance, if it's a large household anyway. He's going to have some attendance helping him. The father is going to give instruction. Well, uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 3 is very clearly Uh, 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 drawing an analogy, a comparison between the church, the local church, and a household. He even says for the overseers, hey, you need to manage your household well, because that's the proving ground for those same skills in the church, which just reinforces the conclusion that just like a father in a household might have some attendance to help him with the tasks, the deacons are to attend to the elders who are to exercise that management over the congregation. So, what do deacons do? Deacons are assistants to the elders in carrying out tasks for the elders as the elders oversee and shepherd the flock. I think that is the most we can say from uh, what we see, particularly uh, knowing the the word group and knowing that it's used in this context of overseers. Now, even that is really open-ended, isn't it? To just say that deacons are assistants to the elders in carrying out tasks for them as the elders oversee and shepherd the flock, that's really broad, very broad. And I think intentionally so. Because if you think about the life of a church, well, it doesn't matter the time or place, but the life of a local church uh, as the elders oversee and shepherd that local flock, there's a lot of different kind of stuff that could come up that they would need help with. There's a lot of different things. Uh, I mean, just even in our own church, uh, to give examples, uh, there's things like heating and cooling the building, but there's also things like cleaning the grounds. There's also things like uh, managing the kitchen and making sure it's well stocked. There's all of these just different stuff. Some churches, if you think about churches in big cities, they have a problem with parking. So they have like deacons of parking Right? Because it's just all these different things that happen organically in the life of the church that uh, the elders are, might need some help with. And that's why it's so open ended. I think the most we can say is deacons are assistants to the elders carrying out tasks for them as the elders sh- oversee and shepherd the flock. Now, that being said, I'm going to say something that's going to sound really insulting, but it's not going to be, it, don't take it that way. It's not designed to be that, okay? Deacons are non-essential to the existence of the church. Now, that sounds really insulting, but here's what I mean by that. Uh, Meaning that a church can exist as a legitimate church without deacons. That's what I mean by that. I do not at all mean that our deacons are not absolutely helpful in the life of the church, because they are. But what I'm saying is that a church can exist and function as a church without deacons. And if you're still kind of rubbed raw a little bit by that, don't worry. It's also true of elders. You don't uh, uh, elders are non-essential to the existence of a church. How do I know that? Acts 14:23. Paul and Barnabas they share the gospel. They establish congregations in Galatia. They go away for a while, and then they come back through. In Acts 14:23, and uh, it says they appoint elders in every church. The church already existed because the church is people. The church is the assembly. The church is members. The only office you can't have and not have a church is members. Now, that being said, is it absolutely healthy to have elders? And is it absolutely healthy to have deacons? Absolutely. That is very clear from what we're going over. But everything in its proper place. What we want to say in all of this is that having well-functioning elders, having well-functioning deacons, and having them work together well gives great vitality to the church and to the Great Commission. And how do we know that? How do we know that? That having well-functioning deacons, assisting the elders, and that relationship working well, how do we know that gives great vitality to the church and to the Great Commission? Well, here's where Acts 6 does come in. Here's where Acts 6 does come in, and this leads us to our last point, the contrast with the 7. The contrast with the 7. Go back to Acts 6. Now, I'll read the passage again, and then we'll draw, draw some conclusions from it. Acts 6, verse 1. Now, in the, these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's Greek-speaking Jews, rose, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily service. That's the first word use of our word group that we've talked about. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, there's our second use of our word group, tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service, third use of our word group in this passage, to the service of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Prochris and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of the lord continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith now like i said there's three uses of our word group in here and so a lot of people will look at that and say well this is clearly the establishment of the diaconate the problem with that is the text doesn't clearly say that that is true It never uses the word diakonos. It never actually uses the word deacon. uh, But it does use the verb and the other noun from the word group. The text in Acts, you have to be careful with text in Acts. Acts is recording what did happen, not necessarily what should happen. Acts is recording what did happen, not necessarily what should happen. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's given for imitation, but sometimes not. Uh, what is Luke's purpose here? What is his general purpose with this section? Well, if you were to look back in Acts 5, uh, you would understand that what Luke is presenting, is he's presenting here were threats to the early church. Here were threats to uh, the Jerusalem church, things like Ananias and Sapphira. So that's an internal threat uh, where they are uh, lying and they get struck down dead, right? That's a threat to the internal Uh, life of the church. But then there's also things like persecution. That's a threat from the outside. And I think what Luke is doing here in the broader context is he's saying, here's another threat. Here's another threat to the church. What's the threat? The threat is unity. The threat is unity because what is happening here? There is a natural rift in this congregation in the Jerusalem church. There's Greek-speaking Jews, and then there's the Palestinian Jews, uh, and they are, uh, that's a natural rift in the congregation. It's like a fault line, ready to go off if the right pressures come on it. And here we've got a pressure where, hey, wait a minute, Uh, the Greek-speaking Jews, the widows of that group, they're not getting Daily food. There was already a distribution. Did you notice that? There was already a distribution of food amongst these widows, but everyone wasn't getting their fair share. So there's a threat to unity. And what Luke's purpose is in this passage primarily is to show here's, there was a threat to the church, and here's how it was resolved by God's grace. But you need to understand this is a response to a particular situation, it's not addressing the overall structure of the church. And we notice also that the apostles, not the elders of the church in Jerusalem, are appointing the deacons. So for all those reasons, I don't think we can just draw a one-to-one line and say, oh, these seven are deacons for sure. I don't think we can do that. Well, that's being said, while there's not a one-to-one connection, I do still think there are principles here that can be learned from this. Again, what is the context? There is a practical internal threat to church unity. And who works together to solve this? Both the members and the apostles, church leadership, work together to ultimately appoint representatives, to appoint assistants to deal with the task. And what is that appointment supposed to do? What is the appointment of the seven supposed to do? The appointment is supposed to guard prayer and the preaching of the word from the leadership. Why? Because that's how a church grows, Notice, don't just, uh, sometimes we're, because we love expository preaching, because we love the scriptures, and rightfully so, sometimes we just hear the preaching of the word, but don't miss prayer. It's both of those things. Why do we say that? Because the church grows through the word. You become a Christian through the word. We know that. The scriptures say that elsewhere. You grow through the word. But notice this, this, the apostles very clearly say, yeah, prayer and the preaching of the word. We're going to guard that. The the, the members of the Jerusalem church, they know they need to guard that, and the apostles know they need to guard that, because that's how a church grows. But don't take prayer out of the equation, because why? Prayer expresses dependence. You could have the scriptures exposited to a T, you could have them preached well, but if there is no dependence... If there's no faith, if there's no active reliance on the power of God through the Holy Spirit in the life of his church, the church's going to die. It's not enough to have good preaching. It's not enough to even know what the scriptures say. The question is, do you have the power to carry it out? And how do you rely on the power of God through prayer? Which is why Steve is so faithful in saying this. The health of a church can be measured by how well is it praying? At every level, at home, in the corporate gathering, how is the leadership doing and all of that? Because that expresses active dependence. But what is going on here is like, okay, we need some help with a very practical task. This needs to be dealt with because otherwise there's this rift in the congregation that's gonna split up the church. So that needs to be dealt with. They're not discounting. That needs to be dealt with. But they're saying, we as the apostles, we as the church leadership, we need to devote ourselves to the preaching of the word and prayer. And the congregation agrees, and they appoint these seven, and what is the result? Verse seven, the word of God keeps multiplying, and going, and building. So this thing, this rift in the church that was going to split up the unity, that was going to diminish Christ and the power of the gospel, it was averted by practical service, and the preaching of the word, and prayer was guarded, and what's the result? The word keeps going forth. The gospel keeps expanding. It keeps reaching more people. And really, if we were here, here's my point in all of this the same reason the apostles and the members of the Jerusalem church appointed the seven, I think, is the same reason that we appoint deacons in our church. To assist the elders to do what? So that the elders can focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. But it's not like the things that the deacons are attending to are unimportant. No, they are very important. They are guarding church unity, and they are guarding the preaching of the word and prayer so that, what, the gospel can continue to go forth. Think about it this way. When... when um, when I notice in our building, our building has um, several issues that we're trying to attend to and make sure that it keeps functioning. Right, not because we love the building, but it's very useful to have a place to meet in the dry and away from the cold and the heat. But like, if if the HVAC system and when it's 100 degrees out, or 115 degrees out, and the HVAC system breaks down. Well, who's going to take care of that? Well, I could, um, I could take care of that, and I could, that's going to pull from my studies uh, for a sermon on Sunday. Or I could say, hey, uh, Tony or Eden, can you, can you work on that? Not be, uh, and uh, what does that do? It frees me up to uh, study, it frees me up to pray, and it frees me up to feed y'all. So what is that? Does that mean that that's lowly work? No, that is essential work. Because what? It is guarding prayer and the preaching of the word it's because God builds his church through his word, through prayer, and so the gospel goes forth. It's a team effort to work together. So, as we pull all this together, what do we learn? What do we do? What do we do with this? First, Jesus' design is that every member serves, not just the deacons or the elders. Uh, it's not just a good idea, it's a command. That's what First Peter 4 seven. As each has resist, received a gift, use it. As each has received a gift. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you receive the gift, so you need to use it. Not for yourself, not to exalt yourself, but for the common good of the church. It's another reason why uh, a lone wolf Christian just doesn't work in at all, because if God has given you as an individual a gift, well, he's designed you to plug into a church to use that gift for the common good. So, if you're a Christian, you have a gift and you are to use it for the common good to the glory of God. Where are you serving? Where are you serving in the local church? Now, as soon as I see that, I need to caveat it because sometimes what comes to our mind with serving is okay, I'm going to serve at the tech booth. Or I'm gonna serve on the music team. Well, those are kind of formal ministries, and we need help in those things. There is absolutely no question. But service doesn't mean that you just partake in a formal ministry. Service means things like uh, praying for others. I know of a couple people in our church who like take our directory or our members and regular attenders and they just pray down the list. That is service. That is absolutely service, and it is crucial to the life of this church. Or maybe it's, it, it looks very organic. The conversations that happen after or before church And like, how is your week? How are you growing in the Lord? Uh, what are you seeking to, what sin are you seeking to put off? What's, uh, what are you seeking to put on? Now that is service. And it is crucial to the life of the church maybe it's like oh i i uh, 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 you know in those conversations it's found out oh you're having trouble with some task around your house hey let me come over and help you with that that's service it's not going to be a formal ministry but it's service in the life of a church or being hospitable hey i don't know you let me let me introduce myself i i want to i want to get to know you and let me have you over for dinner to get to know you a little bit better, that's service. It's not a formal ministry, but that is service in the life of a church. And it goes on and on and on and on. So don't think what I mean by saying that everyone has a gift and needs to serve, that you need to plug into a formal ministry. It means you need to serve your brothers and sisters in all the different variegated ways that that looks for the good and the life of the, and the health of a local church. Now, if you want to learn more about service and what that looks like, I've got a nice little pamphlet that I could hand out to you after service. Just ask me about that. Uh, it's a good one. But that's our first implication from today. Jesus' design is that every member serve, not just the deacons and the elders. Now, let's move on to the deacons and deaconesses that we have here. I want to express deep thanks for all that our deacons and deaconesses do in the life of this church. Uh, you notice in your bulletin, there's a there's a little, uh, one of those QR code thingies uh, that can take you to our website, or if you don't know how to do the QR code thing, that's fine. Just go to our website later, and there's going to be a list of all of our deacons and deaconesses on our about, like, leadership page, and uh, it talks about the areas in which they serve. So we've got deacons of facilities, we've got uh, deaconesses of um, of events and things like this. And all of those areas in which they're serving, they're, 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 they're taking care of practical cares in the church so that the elders can be freed up for the ministry of the word and prayer, and so that the gospel ultimately goes forth. I am deeply thankful to the deacons and deaconesses of this church. You help guard the ministry of the word. You help guard the unity of our church, just like similar to what was going on in Acts 6. So I want to thank you all for how you serve. Now, if you are not a deacon or deaconess, well, great, you still have an area of service and you should be serving. Uh, But consider, just like I called last week, consider thinking and moving and positioning yourself to aspire to the office of uh, elder. If you're a man, Uh, you should be thinking about, well, maybe I should serve as a deacon or deaconess. Maybe I should serve in that formal capacity. Think about that. Consider it. Pray about it. And if you want to learn more about that, I've got another great book uh, that the deacons and deaconesses and elders went through recently that talks about what does it look like? Really good and be helpful as you're considering that. In all of this, what is the motivation? What is the motivation in our service? Whether we're a member, we're all members in the sense of the members of this local church or an elder or a deacon, what is our motivation for service? What is our motivation for doing what we do? Well, I take you back to Mark 10. Mark 10, what is our motivation for serving and doing what we do and functioning together in all these different ways? Again, Jesus, same passage we looked at earlier, Jesus is addressing the desire for prominence and position of some of his um, 12 disciples. He says, though the Gentiles lord it over them, the great ones exercise authority over them. But what does he say in verse 43 in Mark 10? But it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all why for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many do do you realize the service that jesus has given to his people His people that he has died for are absolutely helpless. Sinners, rebels against a holy God with an infinite debt they cannot pay. And with hearts of stone that don't want to turn to God. Deserving of God's eternal wrath in hell. And the only solution was God the Son, who has been God from all eternity. Enjoying the fellowship of the Father and the Spirit to cloak his deity with frail humanity, adding a human nature to his divine nature. Now that is astounding in and of itself, but then Philippians 2 talks about the service going down and down and down. It just wasn't that Jesus came down in the incarnation. Jesus went down to the cross to die in behalf of his people, to be a substitute sacrifice, bearing the eternal weight of God's wrath on the cross, such that for his people who exercise repentance and faith, Jesus served. He's, he, you want a very tangible picture for this. You, you, we don't have time to go to it now, but go to John 13. It's very just kind of Beautiful picture of Jesus takes aside, even as a human, he takes aside his regular garments and he puts a towel around his waist. And he starts, the God of the universe as a, in flesh is wiping the feet of disciples, including the one who betrays him, who's about to send him to the cross. He served like that. That's why we serve. Because he served us. And you might say, ah, I ah. And Peter was this way in John 13. He's like, I don't want your service. That's too demeaning for you, Jesus. I don't want your service. I need to clean myself up first. And Jesus says it. It's like, uh, if I don't clean you, you have no share with me. You need the service of Jesus Christ. You need the God man to serve you. You need God to serve you, to wipe your filthy feet and to wipe your filthy life, to make you acceptable in God's eyes. And there's nothing you can do. All you can do is receive it through repentance and faith and humble yourself and realize I'm a, filthy, uh, I'm a filthy sinner. I deserve God's wrath. And yet the only way I can be saved is through Jesus' service of me. And he will have you through repentance and faith. And then that motivates his people to serve one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to take care of practical tasks and the preaching of the word. Because Christ served us, he gave himself as a ransom for his people. Isn't that a contrast to our society? What's our society all about? Serve yourself. Serve yourself. If that's your heart, I'm going to be about me, and I'm going to make sure my life is cleaned up, and I'm going to make sure my, I get what I want out of this life. You're just a self-servant, and it's ugly. But Jesus came to serve his people. Won't you repent and place your faith in him? And then join the rest of your brothers and sisters in serving one another because the Son of Man has served us and given his life as a ransom for many. So deacons assist the elders so that they can focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. Why? Because of what that word contains, the word about Christ, the word about what he has done to save his people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for serving us, for cleansing us through your death and through your resurrection. There's no way we could deserve your service. There's no way we could even ask for it, but you have given it. And Lord, you have made us a people, members, and then you have appointed elders and deacons all to work together with no, all dependent on what you have done for them on the cross all to work together. Why? To spread the fame of your name and to spread the fame of what you have done. Help us to be motivated by that. Lord, I thank you for our deacons and deaconesses and all that they do. Thank you so much for giving us to them, giving them to us. Lord, help us to recognize what they do and thank them. Lord, help us to be a church that is serving, serving one another, serving at every level not considering self, but considering the other more important than ourselves, just as you did, Jesus. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.